Okay, once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 12? Now, if you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see new faces always and to let you know that we are working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And uh, we have come to John chapter 12 and um, a very important chapter. It opens up just six days before the crucifixion. And so it is uh, leading us into uh, the final week of Jesus' life before the cross. And uh, it's called Passion Week. That's what the Christian church calls it. And so we have been looking at chapter 12. Let's look at verse 20 where we pick it up this morning. Now, there were certain Greeks, these are Gentiles, of course, among those who came up to worship at the feast. Again, this will be the feast of Passover. As we said last week, and I'm reviewing just a little bit, but uh, verse 20 begins a very important transition in the ministry of Jesus. The transition takes, uh, the transition from him offering salvation to the Jewish people those he those he came primarily, but not exclusively to save, yet for the most part had rejected him, to now turning to the Gentiles who came seeking him and whom he would now be allowing to, opening his arms to, uh, to them to become part of the family of God, part of the new covenant people of God. As we said last time, up until this point in his ministry, Jesus concerned himself primarily with the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, when he sent out his 12 apostles to evangelize the lost, he told them, don't go into the way of the Gentiles, nor even to Samaria. Samaria is where the uh, Samaritans were a mixture of uh, Jew and Gentile. Okay, and, uh, But he said, only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And yet, even though God had ordained that the children of Israel were to be the first, were to be the first to be offered citizenship in His coming kingdom by receiving Jesus as their king, well, for the most part, the nation rejected Him. A handful accepted Him; they were His disciples. But for the most part, the nation had rejected Him, and especially the leadership, the chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, and so on. The religious leaders had pretty much fully rejected Jesus. A few Pharisees had come to believe in him, Nicodemus and some others, but you get the idea, okay? So after having been offered the gospel of the kingdom first, but then having rejected it, Jesus now turns to the Gentiles with the offer of salvation and citizenship in God's kingdom. So guys, as we said last week, this becomes a very important point in the gospel of John. He doesn't make a big deal out of it where we, we understand it, though, that uh, this transition is taking place now. Officially, Israel has rejected their Messiah before he goes to the cross. Jesus is uh, welcoming any Gentiles who want to come to him, be a part of God's family, by God's kingdom. Now, understand something that from this point going forward, it marks the beginning of a great, as I said, transition from Israel being the light of God to this lost world, let me stop and say that last week we looked at scriptures in the Old Testament, how God had called Israel to be a light to the Gentiles, to the world. He told Abraham, in you all the families of the earth would be blessed. 
So God had called Israel to be a light to the Gentiles to show anybody, any person, any people that if they make the Lord God of Israel their God, he would bless them and watch over them and take care of them like he has Israel. Israel was to be an object lesson, not an exclusive entity, but an object lesson to the rest of the world that God loves you and God wants you to come and be a part of his covenant people. But Israel, the Jewish people, failed in their responsibility, failed in their mission, in that they began to feel and teach, the rabbis did, that God didn't love the Gentiles, that Gentiles were only created to fuel the fires of hell, and that a Gentile couldn't be saved unless they first became a Jew, proselytized to Judaism, got circumcised, began to keep the law. Then they could be saved only because they were now Jews. And so this was the attitude, all right? And uh, the Jewish people, especially the leadership, showed contempt for Gentiles. Instead of being warm and loving and open and wanting to see them brought to the God of Israel, they pretty much looked down on them and so on. So this marks the transition from God using Israel as a light to this world, right? To, to, to demonstrate what he was like to this world to now him transitioning to a new instrument, to be a light to the world. We call it the church, made up primarily, well, initially, of most all Jews. But of course, as the word went out with the disciples and the apostles, the book of Acts, uh, the word of God spread throughout the known world. And eventually, um, you know, the church was almost predominantly made up of Gentile believers. Now, God's going to turn his face back to Israel exclusively during the tribulation period after the church is raptured out of here. And he's going to begin to save many Jews, 144,000 initially, that will be sealed with the mark of God in their forehead and would become a mighty Paul the Apostle army. I believe it's going to be 144,000 Paul the Apostles unleashed on the world. Wow! Are they going to have a ministry, right? So God's not done with Israel. Read, uh, read Romans 11. It's a mistake to say Israel's over, God's done with them. No. He has set them aside. We are in the, the church age. When the church age ends with the rapture, he will turn his face again toward Israel for one final seven-year period called the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation period, and so on, where he will be using the Jews as a light once again. But, but let me just stop and talk about what it means to be the light of God. We talked a, bit, a little bit last week, but, but let me uh, revisit that, okay? We know that Jesus is the true light. Jesus is the true light. In fact, that's how John introduces him to begin his gospel. John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. In him, in Jesus, was life. Eternal life is the idea. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness couldn't do a darn thing about it. It's a loose paraphrase. The darkness could not comprehend it. The Greek is extinguish it, overcome it. That's the idea. Light is always more powerful than darkness, whether you're talking about physical light and physical darkness, or you're talking about spiritual light and spiritual darkness, which we'll talk about more in a moment. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, Jesus was the true light, which gives light to every man, every woman, of course, coming into the world. Jesus himself had expressed this idea to his disciples, that he had come into the world to be a light. In John 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And there he's talking about spiritual light and spiritual darkness. 
This world is full of spiritual darkness. What is that? Well, in the Bible, God uses light and darkness as metaphors, uh, light being uh, uh, indicative of God's truth, of, uh, of, uh, you know, of morality, of you know, anything that is godly. And darkness is often used uh, to represent uh, lies, error, uh, that which is of the devil, rebellion, and so on. Okay, This world is full of rebellion because the rebel of all rebels came down, took the form of a serpent, tempted Eve. She ate the forbidden fruit, gave to Adam, and he did eat. And the whole world fell and began to be controlled by the devil who is the ultimate rebel. And so Jesus invaded a world of moral and spiritual darkness uh, with God's truth. Now, that was not the first time God's light had entered the world. We'll talk about that more in a second. But let me just get back to what my point right now. So Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows after me shall not walk in darkness. You're not going to be walking, stumbling over, you know, is this the truth of God or is this a lie of the devil? You're going to know the truth of God. Jesus came to declare it and he came to exemplify it. Verse uh, chapter 9, verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Yeah, but Jesus is not here right now, you say. Oh, yes, he is. He's indwelling his church. Jesus is here through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. Hold on to that thought. We'll come back in a moment. So Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Then at one day, one day he turned to his disciples and told them, turn to Matthew 5. And keep your finger here because we'll stay here for just a little bit. But Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And one day he turned to his disciples and told them, Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So the first thing that this passage implies is that the world is in a state of darkness. And of course, we're not talking about literal darkness. We're talking about moral and spiritual darkness. The world is in a state of moral and spiritual darkness. And we, the church now, the church, the people of God, we alone are the only light source that can give to them God's light, God's truth. One author had this to say on the subject. He said, and I quote, It's interesting how the world is always talking about enlightenment ever since the renaissance of the 15th and 16th centuries, which ended the Dark Ages. It was regarded as an age of enlightenment where mankind began to take a new interest in knowledge and learning, uh, and knowledge and learning, recorded by many as the great turning point in the history of civilization as mankind began to look to knowledge, education, and science for the answers to man's problems. Well, those are not the answers to man's problems. Uh, the Enlightenment was good in a lot of ways, but it failed in one major way. It gave people the impression that man could solve his own problems, and man could become smart enough and invent enough good stuff and whatever to solve all of man's problems. The tragedy is that after all these years, man is still looking to knowledge and science and education to save us from our problems. And they're not. We're getting worse. As the Bible says, the closer we got to Jesus' return, things would, evil men would grow worse 
and worse. We're seeing it today. By far, guys, the greatest darkness isn't intellectual ignorance. The greatest darkness is spiritual in nature, the ignorance of God's truth. And so God's word rightly says that mankind is in darkness and that the greatest enlightenment that man needs isn't scientific, it's spiritual. Fallen man needs spiritual light that can only come from God. Guys, spiritual light is truth, the truth of God. It's what you have in your laps. It's called special revelation, where God has given to us his word to tell us who he is, even gives us his name, but gives us specifics about him, what he's like, and uh, most importantly, how much he loves us and has created a way for us to be redeemed because the human race is cursed ever since the Garden of Eden. Every person born into this life is a child of Adam, and the curse of, of Adam is, is on them. It's called the wrath of God abides on them, right? And the only way for a person to escape the curse that's on the family of Adam, Adam's family, pretty scary stuff. The only way for a person to escape the curse and the judgment that is upon the family of Adam is to change families. I know some of us would love to do that. You can do that. <laughs> uh, my family's just nut jobs. Why, why, Lord, why did you have to let me be born? That's, don't worry, I got it covered. You can be born into my family. When you accept Christ, you jump families. You jump families. Born once, physical birth, family of Adam. Born again, spiritual birth, children of God, family of God. And upon the family of God, there is not a curse, not judgment. There is blessings and joy forevermore. That's the family of God, right? But spiritual light is truth. The truth of God as revealed to man. God's word is truth and therefore it is light. Let me read you two scriptures. John 17, verse 17. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them my disciples that's including all of us he goes on to include us in that prayer check it out john 17 sanctify them by your truth your word is truth and then psalm 119 105 your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path guys all throughout the old testament period god revealed his word uh, to the prophets in fact it wasn't just the prophets but they were the main source right I talked about how that God's light came into the world before Jesus. That's true, all right? Because God was speaking, yes, primarily through prophets. But we know that he revealed himself and his word through visions and dreams and angels and so on. God spoke in many ways. In fact, we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God, who at very, various times and in different ways, spoke in time past, in the Old times to the fathers the jewish patriarchs by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son and here's the idea all throughout the old testament period god had been interjecting light his truth into the darkness of this world right little points of light wasn't it george uh, george w uh, who said uh, in one of his speeches you know a thousand points of light well, God made was a lot more than that, all right? But these were little pin, pinpoints of light that were little, you know, statements of his truth, right? 
the greatest revelation, and that's what that was, okay? Uh, the greatest revelation was the incarnation, where God fully disclosed himself, where the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John said, we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus Christ, God at one point, became a man, walked among us. For three and a half years, he ministered. He, he taught these 12 closest men, who eventually 11 of them at least went out into the world and proclaimed the good news, but there was many other disciples. But the greatest revelation, that's what you have in your lap, it's called special revelation, but it was made up of prophets and visions and dreams throughout the centuries, but the greatest of the revelations was the incarnation, when God actually, be, the word of God became a man and dwelt among us, and people got to see him. And John says, we, we saw him, we, we touched him. He was not a phantom, he was real. And he spoke to us, and he taught us about God, and so on. And this is the light that Jesus came to bring, that he was passing on to his church to continue his ministry. But Jesus said in John twelve thirty five, Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. And again, he's talking about spiritual light as opposed to spiritual darkness. He is really appealing to the people he was ministering to. I'm not going to be with you forever. Now, we know he was not going to leave us alone. He would send the Holy Spirit and continue his ministry through the church. We just said that. But he was making a point. He was saying, look, the light is only here for so long. I think in John 9, he said, you know, uh, you know, you only have 12 hours of light in a day, implying that light is followed by darkness. Here I am. This is a special day, quote unquote, where I have brought the light of God to you. Embrace it. Receive it. Uh, and by God's grace, begin to live it. Because if you reject it, you're going to walk in darkness. Satan's lies will be everywhere. You'll be captivated. You'll be captured. The Bible talks about how the devil is taking captive many to do his will. And they're not our enemies, by the way. It's, I know it's hard to separate uh, people from you know, the devil's doings in their lives. You get so angry when you see and hear what people are doing, right? And, uh, and, and opposing God and, and the evil things that they're into. They're not our enemies. We, they've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. Pray for them. They, have, they were in darkness as we were at one time. God opened our eyes. We need to pray that he opens their eyes, is the idea. But Jesus said, look, while I'm here, embrace the light. I came to be a light. I came to give you God's truth, God's light. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he would go on to say in chapter 14, verse 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's right, because there's only one way that leads to heaven. And that is the way of the cross. That's the way of Christ. Everything else is darkness. And it's loaded with spiritual landmines that could kill you at any time. And if you die physically, and a lot of folks are involved in things of darkness that will kill them physically, but they will go on in, in, in spiritual death for eternity. This is serious stuff here, okay? Serious stuff. And, and Jesus came with a, to do a vital ministry, and he's passed it along to his church. Church isn't about playing games. It's not about socializing. We enjoy that. It's not about, you know, club mid Christianity where it's all fun and games and, and, and fellowship. and, and all. No, 
we're in a, a war. And, and, and the, the, somebody has said, you know, Christianity is a battleground, not a playground. We need to take this war seriously. But spiritual light is the revelation of God's truth found in his word and declared by his son initially. And since God is the source of all spiritual light, and the only way, listen, we can be spiritual lights in this dark world is if we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, the light of the world, Jesus Christ, who then comes inside of us, takes up residence by his Holy Spirit, and then because God dwells in us, the light of the world, it begins to shine through us. And that's how we become the light of the world, by Jesus living inside of us. And guys, that's the only way. That, that is the only way that we will become the light of the world, as Jesus said here in Matthew 5, verse 13, which means it is now our responsibility to share the truth, truth of God with others through our words, yes, but especially through our lives. Mark it down. I have seen Christians who are very verbal, had no problem at all being verbal for Jesus. But you look at their lives, their lives didn't really reflect what they claimed to believe. There's a lot of carnality, a lot of hypocrisy. Um, I think that if you could choose between one or the other, uh, if I could, I'd choose rather to be a quiet witness where my light was shining by the way I live than me just talking. Uh, both are ideal, that you live a godly life, that you live a sincere life, an authentic Christian life, and then as opportunity presents itself, you can share the gospel and people look at you and go, you know, I, I'm not sure I agree with this person, but boy, they're not a hypocrite. I see how they conduct themselves at work. I see how they conduct themselves here or there. I, I know one thing. They're the real deal. But that, that should be our testimony, right? That, that's what we should be shooting for. You know, the only way Jesus will shine through us is by doing what we just said, Right? Um, very important that we live authentic lives so that Jesus can shine through us. Matthew 5, again, verse 14, he said, You are the light of the world. Drop down to verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. First of all, and obviously, okay, but the purpose of a light source is to give light. To the surrounding area, right? That's pretty simple, straightforward. There, there's no purpose in lighting a, a candle or a lantern only to hide it under a basket or a bushel. That's his point. The purpose of our Christian lives is to be a light to those living around us in the world. Or what good is it? The purpose of our Christian lives is to be a light to those who are living in spiritual and moral darkness around us in the world. Listen, Jesus didn't say to his disciples, you are the light of the church. He said, you are the light of the world. Sometimes we forget that. And if we don't take the light of God into the darkness of the world around us, but only keep it here in church, well, this place then becomes nothing more than a giant basket, quote unquote, to hide our light, making it useless. How do we let our light shine in the darkness of this world? Well, Jesus alluded to it here in, here in Matthew 5. Verse 16, he said again, let your light, what? So shine. See the emphasis there? So shine. 
before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus taught what he meant by letting the world see our good works. You can read that on your own. Okay, let your light so shine that the world might see your good works. Glorify your Father in heaven. He goes on the rest of the sermon to talk about what exactly those good works are. Okay, and uh, you can read that on your own, but I don't want you to get the impression. And I just wanted to stop for just a second and say that I didn't want you to get the impression. Of, I know that the Lord doesn't, so I don't want to misrepresent him and make it seem like I'm saying something I'm not. But these good works, let your light so shine that they see your good works, right? These good works don't save us. I think we all know that, right? These good works, whatever they are, you can read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, don't save us. I know part of it was praying, fasting, giving uh, gifts of money to poor people, and so on. There's other things, right? Those good works don't get us into heaven. Listen, they only reveal that we are the children of God. We don't have any good works before we get saved, is the idea. And, and, and it's very important that we understand that, right? And so you, it begs the question, well, what would hinder the light of Christ from so shining through us? If that's the goal, if that's what Jesus is talking about, well, then what would hinder the light of Christ from, from so shining through us? Well, have you ever seen a candle trying to, a candle trying to shine through a dirty window? What do you need to do? Well, you need to so clean the window so the light can so shine through it unhindered. The same is true with us. If our life is dirty from sin, there's a lot of carnality in the body of Christ in these days. A lot of carnality. Closer we get to Christ's return, more apostasy is coming into the church, and it's affecting even real Christians. The, the standard is being lowered. In fact, many churches don't even teach holiness anymore. They don't talk about taking up your cross. Um, you know, apparently they did some focus group work. Realize that's not a message that brings people in. I'm going to nix that from my teaching. Okay. Uh, well, you know, did you talk to Jesus? Because he seemed to think it was pretty important to, to, you know, take up your, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus, uh, that kind of thing. But, um, th but the same is true with us. Even after we get saved, sometimes there's a lot of dirt left from the old life that we haven't allowed the Spirit to clean away. It happens to all of us. And so we first need to be cleansed so that the light of God can so shine through us. Well, how is that accomplished? Well, first and foremost, 1 John 1, 9, uh, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's where it starts, right? And then once you confess that sin, repent of it, whatever it is, then you draw close to the Lord. You stay in the Word. You draw close in prayer. And, and just keep drawing closer and closer to Him where you know your love for Him just is all-consuming. And that will keep you from sin. The more you love God, the less you're going to love sin. I think it's easy, you know. And the less you love God, the, the, you know, as far, you know, the farther you are from God, the more you're going to draw towards sin. Peter followed Jesus at a distance the morning of his crucifixion, and he wound up, you know, standing by the fire with the enemies of God, denying the Lord three times. We want to, the psalmist says, I want to walk hard after you. The idea is right in your heels. 
That way you won't get, you know, you know. Moms, ever take one of your little ones to the store? And what's the, what did you say to them? You stay right by my side, you know. You know, because you know, when they wander off, there's problems, okay? So a clean life, in other words, a holy life, will allow the light, our light, Jesus living in us, to so shine through us. We read this last week. Let me read this scripture again. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 out of the NLT. Talking to Christians, do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. No one can call you a hypocrite. He said, live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in, the, in a world full of crooked and perverse people. We do that by living holy lives, staying close to the Lord. All right, back to John 12. So again, you had some Gentiles who had uh, come to the feast of, uh, of Passover. And uh, verse 21, then they came to Philip, who was one of Jesus' disciples, his apostles. Uh, Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Je We want to see Jesus. Now, these Greeks, as we said last time, were what the New Testament refers to as God-fearers. God-fearers. Who were they? Well, they were a group of Gentiles who loved the God of Israel. They came to believe in and love the God of Israel and were sympathetic to and supportive of the Jewish faith, yet they had stopped short of proselytizing into Judaism by getting circumcised and beginning to keep the laws of Moses. But they did love God, the God of Israel. You can check out last week's study because we went into this, all right? So verse 23, we're not sure if Jesus is talking to these uh, Gentiles or simply to Peter, excuse me, to Philip and Andrew, um, who went to Jesus to find out if they could bring these Gentiles over to see him. Probably uh, Philip and Andrew are in view here. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, as we said last time, uh, many times during his public ministry, Jesus made the statement, My hour has not yet come. And that was usually after he had worked a miracle, fed a bunch of people with just some crumbs, and they wanted to take him by force and make him king. Let's, let's be honest. This guy, the greatest welfare program in the whole world. We don't even have to work anymore. We'll just go to Jesus and multiply all kinds of crumbs and make big feasts for us and so on. So, but Jesus always said, my hour is not yet come, and he'd slip away and he'd be gone. All right? But here he says, the hour has come. And he links it to his crucifixion, which he doesn't call, say, the hour of my crucifixion has come. He says, the hour of my glorification has, has come. As we said last time, he always looked past the cross to the glory that would follow. The glory meaning that he would gather to himself a redeemed people who would forever worship God in spirit and in truth and be members of his kingdom. He had to die to bring that about, but that was always the goal. That was always looking, that was the glory. He never even acknowledged the cross. It was just a necessary thing that he had to endure to get to the glory, that, that people would be saved and be members of God's kingdom forever. All right? But to explain the necessity of his death in producing much life, many saved, redeemed souls for the kingdom of God, he uses an illustration from something they were all very familiar with. We talked about it last time. From farming. They were an agrarian people. They lived close to the soil. And, of course, agriculture was what, how they lived. 
And so Jesus said in verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you that uh, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. Very simple illustration that they would have all understood. We understand it, you know, even though we're not farmers, uh, most of us. Um, you know, you take a little grain of wheat, you bury it in the ground, you, you know, it's, it, it, and it dies. What does that mean? It germinates. And then from that dead seed, it produces a stock of wheat that eventually comes up, ripens. And on that new stock of wheat is many uh, seeds, many grains, right? And the principle is, if you're going to have a harvest, there has to be death. Death of seeds. But if you want a harvest of souls for the kingdom, well, someone has to die. And the only person who could die was Jesus Christ. And so he applies the whole thing to himself later on in chapter 12, verses 32 and 3. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Of course, he's talking about the cross. After he died on the cross, he was placed in the tomb where he stayed for three days before he rose from the dead. And Jesus said, if I live, you will live also. And, uh, and so on. Um, but Jesus had to suffer and die before people could be saved. If Jesus hadn't died, as we said last time, he would have remained alone as the only member of the human race worthy of heaven, as the only member of the human race that would ever be a member of the family of God. Through his death, he was buried like a seed. Through his resurrection, he produced much fruit. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, Verse 20, Jesus was the first fruits. He came out of the ground as the first fruit, signifying that a bumper crop, a great harvest of souls, would come up after him someday. That's coming. That's called the great, uh, the great harvest of the rapture. When the rapture happens, the great harvest will take place. But back in John 12, verse 25, he said, He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, understand something. Let me just explain just quickly. When Jesus said, he who loves his life. Well, don't we all love life? Are we expected to hate life? To go around, you know, just despising our lives? Well, some do. They need help. That's not what God wants for his people, though. But when Jesus said, he who loves his life, what he's saying is, he who places his life, makes it a priority above God's will, God's kingdom, God's service. They can do that. They have a free will. But they're going to forfeit their life for eternity. But whoever hates his or her life, that doesn't mean you hate your life. It just means you don't place it above God. It means that you allow God's kingdom, God's service, God's will to be supreme. That's how you hate your life. And Jesus said, if you make God the priority and live for him, that indicates you have saving faith in your heart. You are a true disciple, and you're going to live forever in God's kingdom someday, is the idea. Okay? We'll couple that with Matthew 16. You can turn there. But in Matthew 16, verse 25, Jesus said, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, 
Last week, I told you that I ran out of time. Okay. I didn't intend for this to be a two-part message, okay? But I said that the title of the message is Dying to Live. Dying to Live, okay? And what I was doing is I was wanting to present to you, and I didn't get a chance to do it last week, so I'm doing it right now, that Jesus said many things. That to the natural mind, the unredeemed mind, the unsaved mind, okay, would seem paradoxical. Things like, the first will be last, and the last will be first. Or, if you want to be somebody great in the kingdom of God, you have to be, you have to be a nobody now, a servant of everybody. How about Luke 6.38? The more you give, the more you'll have. Or, if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. But if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. Or, in other words, the way down is the way up, and the way up is the way down. And then here in John 12.25 and Matthew 16.25, he is basically saying, if you want to live, then you have to die. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? It means if we want to live eternally in heaven someday, then we have to die here on the earth right now, die to our rights, die to our comforts, our interests, our will, and our goals to live for Jesus. Listen, you must be willing to do that. It doesn't mean God requires that of every person. Sometimes God lets us have comforts. I think we're all pretty comfortable. We have nice places to live, nice furniture, probably all of a big screen TV, that kind of thing, right? We're not roughing it, is my point. Sometimes God will not ask you to forfeit your goals. In fact, he might have put those goals in your heart because he wants to use them to build his kingdom in some way. The point is we must be willing to walk away from anything in this life if God says, I want you to follow me over here. I, want, I, I, knew, I knew a guy. He became a pastor. He had a thriving uh, business, very successful. Uh, God said, I want you to walk away from that and be a missionary in Africa. Terrifying, yeah. But after he was there for a while, he looked back and said, I wouldn't trade this for anything in the world. Because if you follow the Lord... You might, it's a little scary at times, but it will lead you to the best life possible. I'm talking about in the inner life, you know? I mean, I've heard missionaries say, I, live in a, I used to live in a beautiful house back in the States. I'm living in a hut here in Africa, and I, I couldn't be happier. Because it's a, it's, it's a life on the inside that is joy inexpressible, full of glory, that kind of thing, right? But the Lord is saying that, Whoever lives only to save their earthly life, you know, their physical life. You know, they only live to enjoy earthly pleasures and comforts and acceptance from the world. It's very important to some people that they be accepted by the world. Well, Jesus, they're going to lose their opportunity for eternal life. But whoever is willing to give up his earthly life to follow Jesus and to suffer and die for Christ's sake if need be. Not all of us are going to be martyrs. But he might call some of us at one point to die for him. Are we willing to do that? See, these are the qualities, guys, that make up genuine saving 
faith which alone can give you eternal life. This is the point. This is the point. Do we have genuine saving faith? I don't know. Are you willing to give up whatever for Jesus? I believe I would. I'm a little scared. That's okay. It's okay to be scared. Are you willing? Yeah, I believe I am. Or, I'm not sure. Well, you pray about it. You pray about it. But this is what Jesus was talking here about. But let me just say this as we wind this down. These kingdom paradoxes seem foolish to the natural mind. I mean, to die is to live and to give is to gain. Uh, that just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to unsaved people. It sometimes doesn't even make sense to a lot of saved people who are still very carnal in their walk. They haven't matured yet. And so we resist this teaching of Jesus because it goes against our natural inclinations and requires faith to live out in our lives. But guess what? Our flesh will fight us tooth and nail if we try to live by faith. Because that's what's necessary to walk in the Spirit, which is the real goal of God for our lives. But you see, the life of the Spirit is 180 degrees opposite the life of the flesh. The life of the Spirit is a life of faith. It's what the Bible calls the resurrection life that a person, a saved person, can only enter into through death, the death of self, the death of self. Very important point. You, you know, the, <laughs> Jesus died on Crucifixion Friday. He rose on Resurrection Sunday. The order is no mistake, by the way. We say, well, obviously. No, no, but he was laying down a spiritual principle. Crucifixion Friday has to come before Resurrection Sunday. Or in other words, you have to die to self to enter into the resurrection life. And that's the life that we all must enter into. We're going to really serve God and bring him glory and fulfill the purpose for which he has created us. Back in Matthew 16, verse 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow, <clears throat> and follow me. And so I'll give you one more paradox of the Christian life. You ready? God's gift of salvation is free. But to receive it, it will cost you everything. Think about that for a minute. God's gift of salvation is free. You just ask for it, reach out and receive it. But it will cost you everything to follow Jesus. And the everything, by everything I mean, everything, God's going to break um, us of, and empty us of every ounce of self before he can fill us with his spirit. And the idea, guys, is control. That's what sanctification is all about. After you get saved, you begin a life of sanctification, drawing closer and closer to Jesus. How is that possible? You have to relinquish more and more control of your life to let God take control. See, the Holy Spirit wants to fill us. Think of your life when you're just, you're five minutes saved, okay? And you're like a glass. Think of a, a, a clear glass filled with seven and a half inches of dirt. Eight-ounce glass, right? Can't get much water in there, can you? Got to clean out the dirt before you can start filling it with more and more water. That's our life, you know, right when we get saved. God wants to fill us with his spirit. But there's a lot of self there. 
So the Lord begins to put us through things to remove self. So he can fill us more and more with his spirit. Because the goal is he wants to control us. And that's what the idea behind the Greek when it says they were filled with this or that. It means they were controlled by this or that. You see in the book of Acts, they were filled with wrath. They were controlled by wrath. They were filled with joy. They were controlled by joy. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were controlled by the Holy Spirit. That is the ultimate goal of our Christianity. To save us, yes, but then to take total control of our lives because that way God can, lead, can use us totally. He can bless us totally. And we can have the most rewards in heaven waiting for us forever. So, so God is working. And he's doing all kinds of things to pry the world away from us. I think the coronavirus, in part, was allowed by God because in America we've gotten too self-sufficient, too smug. We don't need anybody. We've got plenty of money. We don't need to pray, give us this day our daily bread. We don't need to do any of that. We've become very self-sufficient, kind of, you know, God's there in our lives, but he's not everything. He's not somebody we're clinging to and so on, right? And so he allows things to happen that, forces to give up control. We, we, we haven't had control, really, in many ways for, for the last six months, right? You don't think so? Look in the mirror. You're wearing a mask today. <laughs> Me too, as soon as I'm done talking. Um, but I think God allowed this to infect our country in part to force us to be less self-dependent and more God-dependent. Why? Because stuff is coming. And we need to be close to God. We need to be dependent on God. And not just a little, and not just superficially. I'm talking about, God, I can't do anything apart from you. That's going to be the prayer of the day, every day we wake up. And he does all this out of love. Forcing us to let go of control. To grab onto him. He knows that it's not until we let go and trust him will we ever know the joy of walking in the spirit. So let's go back to Matthew for a second, verse uh, chapter 16, verse 25. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Guys, every person has a choice when it comes to this life. They can go for it, grab for all the gusto, live totally for themselves, and forfeit any opportunity to have eternal life because they're too busy feeding and satisfying the flesh. Or they can forsake this life now in the sense that they give it up to God. Lord, it's yours. My life is yours. You're in control now. I'm your servant. Whatever you say goes. Tell me what you want me to do. That indicates saving faith, right? And of course, that will give you life forever life forever guys there are no shortcuts in 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 what some have called calvary road taking up your cross and walking the path that jesus walked right there are no shortcuts um, to make the path easier or quicker many have tried you read pilgrim's progress which is one of our books of the month you know that christian tried to take some shortcuts didn't end so well okay you have to walk the path. It's narrow. Sometimes it's very difficult. The broad way, yeah, everyone loves that path. It says this way to God, this way to heaven. It's broad. It's tolerant. It's easy. That's the way of death. 
That's the devil's disguise, his counterfeit. Uh, he has counterfeited the way to God with the path of religion. And depending on what church you belong to, some of those paths are very easy. In fact, they let you indulge your flesh any way you want and still get to heaven. And because we are living in a day when people want their ears tickled, as Paul said would be the attitude of the last day's church, many of these apostate churches, the attitude is that they don't want to hear sound doctrine from God's word. They want to, they've gathered to themselves preachers and teachers that will tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear. So a lot of these uh, end times pastors are, are preaching a gospel that has no cross in it. There's no cross. It's God loves you. It's a wonderful plan for your life. You know, you don't have to give up. Just believe in Jesus. You don't have to give up anything. You don't have to change anything. Just add Jesus and everything's going to be great. That's not the gospel that Jesus presented or the apostles. That's a false gospel. And that's not, let me say this, a crossless gospel is a Christless gospel. And a Christless gospel won't save anybody. But of course, salvation isn't the end. It's only the beginning of a journey that lasts the rest of our lives and then on into heaven. Salvation isn't the end. It's only the beginning, the beginning of a, of a life of service. Let me finish with John 12, 26. If anyone serves me, all right, now they're saved. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. We just saw we just saw Jesus um, right into Jerusalem on um, my mind was blank. Um, uh, that Sunday. Palms, thank you. Palm Sunday. We're in the last week of his life before the cross. So when he says, "Come and follow me," where's he going? He's going to the cross. Which, by the way, is the answer to the question, sir, we wish to see Jesus. You want to see Jesus? You'll see him at the cross. Otherwise, you're going to run into some fake Jesus, some phony Jesus, some weird end times gospel that's not going to save anybody. You want to see Jesus in truth? Come to a church that preaches the cross. That's where you're going to find Jesus. Not in some apostate church that, you know, it's telling everybody, you're fine, I'm fine, we're all fine. As they, uh, you know, as they uh, ordain homosexuals and, and teach evolution and, uh, and are pro-communism. They're all about the woke movement and their Black Lives Matter and Antifa followers. And, and you, know, the, you know, they're raising their fists like they're part of the group, right? These are the apostate churches of the last day. And they have forsaken the cross. They have forsaken Calvary Road, the narrow way. Now look, it will end. I know, I still have three pages of notes. I got to end. There's not going to be a part three. I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm not going there. But let me just end by saying this. Jesus gives us a simple litmus test that we might use to determine if we are really following him. Right? Anyone who serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Very simple test. To determine if we're really following Jesus, if we're really his servants, his disciples.
if a person claims to believe in Jesus and to be one of his followers, well, are they living in sin? Now look, understand something. Any true Christian can fall into sin. I'm not saying that we're sinless once they get saved. I'm talking about somebody who gives God lip service and doesn't wrestle with their lifestyle at all. They, they think it's great. They think God loves the way they are. God made me this way, right? And, and so you, you know, people are living all kinds of lives, and it, their Bible defines them as sinful, but they really believe Jesus is with them. They're following Christ. They're servants of Christ. Jesus said, I wouldn't be there. I wouldn't be there. I mean, are you, are you, are you going places where he would never go? Are you doing things he would never do? Because if you are, he's not with you. You're not following him. I don't care what you think, how you feel. doesn't matter. Jesus said, my true disciples, my servants, follow me. And I always do those things that please my father. There are many churches in our nation that are involved in a lot of things. Come out and check our Revelation study out this Wednesday. We're, we're talking about them. There's a lot of people who call themselves Christians and are not following Jesus. They're not where he is. And all you got to do is read his word. You know, again, go back to the light. If you're not going to, you know, Isaiah 8.20, if they don't speak according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. That's a good thing to post on pulpits all across America, if this pastor doesn't speak according to this word, God's word, it's because there is no light in him or her. This is the light of God. This is what we walk in. And if we walk in it, as Jesus said, we'll never stumble in darkness. So as we, the, as the days, you know, are progressing, we must have a deeper commitment to God's word because deception is rampant and it's getting even more wicked the closer we get to Jesus' return. Darkness is everywhere. We have to walk in God's light. We have to know what it says. And so may God give us grace. By his grace next week, we will continue on. And so let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. It's a light to our path. And we thank you, Lord, that as we, long as we walk in the light of your word, we will never stumble in darkness. Give us grace, Lord, to become voracious readers, studiers, meditators uh, of your word. And, uh, Father, we ask you to keep blessing these studies for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.